And what happens if they do become hostile? And God help us. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Early happy Halloween greetings to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour as we anticipate Halloween and we get to spend this pre-trick-or-treat time with our buddy, our producer, the man who keeps us on an even keel. Why, of course, that is bad boy Benny Mathers with us here. Are you dressing up in any bad boy form are you showing up in any costume i will be on monday i don't want to give out too much you know i'm a past winner of a few times past winner many times okay well yeah okay go ahead stroke the ego a little bit more (laughs) nobody does halloween like benny yeah but you know what i'll be honest i'm getting up there the age a little bit there you know and just maybe i want the other little kids around here to have some fun too (laughs) Sure. Are you the one that answers the door in your neighborhood, which in Seattle, as is, is our listeners well know, around Puget Sound, Halloween trick-or-treating starts at about eh, 4.30 p.m.? <laughs> Just about right. Or you go to the malls these days. Everyone still goes to the malls. That's always a safe place for yeah. the kids. My boys are 11, so they still want to go out and enjoy it for you know this year and maybe a couple more years. And then, then after that, I will probably be staying more at home and handing it out. I loved trick-or-treating. I lived in the city of Chicago. The houses were close together. You could hit them one right after oh, the other. Don't even. As fast as you could. So, Fill that bag. Yeah, so that was the reverse of what happened to us when I lived in Alaska. <laughs> houses are much farther apart. Oh, yeah. We had to be oh. driven, right, like down the driveways, right. around the so moose. So would you get like three pieces of candy? No, yeah, but they were like the big <laughs> ones. We got like the big ones. So oh, we were we were taken one. care of. Uh, but like, you know, you had to dodge moose and go through snow, you know, this yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. But then when we moved to Washington, <laughs> we live in an apartment. Bang. Now that's like loading it up. You go from That's door to door. It's like from door here to door. To door. Go down two wow. stairs. Door, door. <laughs> two more stairs. Door, door. It was great. Uh, kids and candy. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so we are going to talk to Carl Petrie today. <clears throat> today of all days, this was our opportunity to speak with Carl. I've got a little bio here that bio I'm going the to nice read, man. but there's so much more that could be said and probably and will, will be, said. be said about Carl, yes. who has become a dear friend of ours. He and his lovely wife, Sue, we have stayed as an honored guest in their home. We were the ones honored and uh, hopefully we can return the favor someday soon. Carl Petrie joins us. Yes, he does. That's the headline. Here's the bio, the brief one. Carl Petrie is a psychic medium residing in Kearney, New Jersey. Previously, he was an independent filmmaker, and he still retains his ties, his connections to that industry. He also was a professional videographer working for the legal profession and also the Parapsychology Foundation. He investigates cases of hauntings, earthbound souls, and other unusual activity. And he just makes it fun. And here now from Kearney, New Jersey, on his birthday. Carl Patrick. What an intro. 
Hi, Lord. <laughs> and I should add that that birthday greeting and song was provided by Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> and why would I say such a thing? Why would you say Ramon Raquello? Because that is the subject of today's show that we are very excited to talk with Carl Petri about. I wonder if any of our listeners were around in no October, no October 30, no. 1938. They weren't, no. you know, and now they've come full circle to be Manson Mitchell listeners. No, no, you don't think so? No, I guess I don't either. That's why we're telling the story today. Or Carl Petri is, yes. he has the details. He has the overview. He has insights. He has the scoop for us about the infamous, you could call it famous. It was a wonder, the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast on October 30, 1938, Orson Welles, who was a young genius at that time, masterminded a broadcast that will resonate throughout the history of the medium, no doubt about it. And it has implications for society, as we're going to discover in our conversation with Carl Petri. Carl, welcome, sir. It's great to have you back with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. And we had a great subject today about War of the Worlds, I like the audio read, version. Yes, let me read the, the lead and maybe a bit beyond. I'll do this quickly from the New York Times, October 31, 1938. Day after the broadcast. Day after the broadcast, Halloween edition. Here we go. It starts out, a wave of mass hysteria sees thousands of radio listeners between 8.15 and 9.30 o'clock last night when a broadcast of a dramatization of H.G. Wells's fantasy, The War of the Worlds, led thousands to believe that an interplanetary conflict had started with invading Martians spreading wide death and destruction in New Jersey and New York. The broadcast, which disrupted households, interrupted religious services, created traffic jams and clogged communication systems, was made by Orson Welles, who is the radio character of the shadow used to give the creeps to countless child listeners. This time, at least a score of adults required medical treatment for shock and hysteria. In Newark, in a single block at Hedden Terrace and Hawthorne Avenue, more than 20 families rushed out of their houses with wet handkerchiefs and towels over their faces to flee from what they believed was to be a gas raid. Some began moving household furniture, and the story goes on from there. What an amazing thing that something as phenomenal as this lone broadcast, unique in every way, had such a profound impact on those who didn't hear the disclaimers. And you know more about that than I do, Carl, but these folks believed it was real and they acted accordingly as best they could. What an amazing night in American history. Yeah, and a lot has to do with the timing. Uh, the timing that people turned into the show, because Orson Welles, he had this Mercury Theater on the air. This was a weekly show. This was not a one-time thing, and but it wasn't very popular. There were other shows that are on the, on the radio that were more popular. One was with Edgar Bergen, and but the problem is, it's called the uh, Chase and Sanborn uh, Sanborn Hour, and. The thing is, when they had a musical interlude on this particular day, people went to their radio and they turned the channel. And when they turned the channel, they turned it on to the Mercury Theater and they never heard the introduction. All they heard was Martians have landed and right outside of Princeton. 
and thing horrible things were happening. So they missed the intro. They got right into the story, and that's what terrified. That's what terrified them. And remember, this was pre-television. This is only the radio they had. I should mention too, Carl, that you want to talk about straightforward journalism. This is from NPR on the 75th anniversary of the broadcast. Here's how they described it. On the evening of October 30, 1938, Orson Welles and his troop went on the air to say that Martians had invaded New Jersey. <laughs> now, is this supposed to be a good thing? <laughs> Just putting it out there. Okay, they've invaded New Jersey. We're out here in Seattle. We're fine. Nothing to see here, folks. What an incredible thing. And it's the psychology of the human being that is in play here. And I'm sure there has, it's, that broadcast has been the study of many psychological and sociological experiments and certainly research. There were still movies, Carl, but I likened this today with Gary to going to a horror movie because there were movies in the 1930s. It was still a, a, a young industry. It wasn't as well established. But uh, wouldn't you say that listening to the radio was akin to going to a movie where you could, you know, see a horror film uh, today and, and even during this time and after that time where you would get scared and wasn't the idea that Orson Welles was going to use this as a Halloween prank to scare people? Well, that's 100% correct, because don't forget, in those days, uh, when it comes to horror movies and that sort of thing, Frankenstein came out in 1931. And Dracula came out a couple of years later. And they never experienced anything like that. When Frankenstein was shown in the theater, people, when they saw the face of Frankenstein, would collapse in their seat. They would, they would just, just fall, you know, fall apart because they never saw anything like that. So they're very susceptible to things like, you know, there wasn't that kind of special effects like we're used to now. This was a real thing. And uh, it really affected people. And this broadcast, uh, for example, after it came out, it caused so much trouble out there that uh, the, um, there was a demand from the Federal Communications Commission to put regulations on such programs because of the damages that were caused by this. And, uh, and you got to understand that Orson Welles was a genius. He was an absolute genius. And, uh, you know, other people, if they were making a program like this, they would use a fictitious town, fictitious places. Everything would be, you know, you've never heard of these places before, which would calm people down. If he said they were invading New Jersey and it came out with Smithville or whatever, people would say, I don't, that's ridiculous. I never heard of that. But Orson Welles, being Orson Welles, he used real places. He talked about the Pulaski Skyway. He talked about the this, this streets in Newark. They were real streets. Uh, he was talking about different, uh, like the hotels or whatever. These are the Wachung Mountains. They were really there. So if you lived in New Jersey, as I do, and somebody came up and was saying that the Martians were right next to the Pulaski Skyway. Hey, that's a real place. I could go look out my window and I see the Pulaski Skyway. Or I could see Manhattan from my house. 
I am terrified now because they are real places and he's talking about them coming closer to me. And that's what's caused all the scare. And that's why people and heading terrorists in Newark were running out of their houses, you know, with uh, uh, handkerchiefs over their mouths because they were real places. So Orson Welles was a genius. He knew exactly what buttons to push. And it's hard to believe the man was only 23 years old. Wow. Mm. It's incredible. That is amazing. We saw the movie that was about this broadcast that was done with quite a few famous stars in it. And in the movie version, uh, the original city was going to be Newark, your city. And then uh, in, in, the, in the movie, there was some reason why they were gonna change it. And they threw a dart at a map of New Jersey to pick where the UFO was going to land, the fictitious UFO. Do you know if that's a true story or not? Have you done any research on that? I try to find out if that was true or not. And I really can't confirm it. Some people said, Yes, a few people said no, it was only for the movie. So I can't say pro or con. I really don't know. But for them to pick out such a small, out-of-the-way place, I tend to sort of like lean towards, yeah, they probably threw a dart. Because Grover's Mill is not a very popular place. It's a very small town uh, where the Martians were going to land. And um, uh, it... As a matter of fact, after they did that and the broadcast was going on, all the people from Grover's Mill got into their cars and caused a traffic jam trying to exit Grover's Mill. <laughs> and we have been, and we've to, been Grover's to Grover's Mill. Mill. Yes, we have been there. Thanks to Carl Petri. We Carl drove was. out to Grover's Mill and the people apparently embraced the idea that People were going to come to see this fictitious landing. And so they actually have a place where they honor that with a memorial, with a stone that, that says this was where the landing site was that was in the broadcast, right? That's right. The West Windsor Arts Council celebrates the broadcast every year on October 30th. People kept on coming to Grover's Mill to see I mean, after all these years, I mean, this was 84 years ago, right. and people were still hopping in their cars, driving to Grover's Mill to take a look around the town to see what's going on there. So the town decided, since we have all these visitors, let's give them a place to go. So there's a place called the Van Nest Park. Yes. It's a tiny little park, and they decided this is the place where the Martians landed. And so that's why they put the memorials there. They put the plaques there. And these aren't cheap plaques. If you look at these plaques that the town put up there, these are expensive, very expensive plaques. Uh, cost them probably thousands upon thousands of dollars. Then they erected a, a monument there. And what a lot of people don't know, they actually put a time capsule underneath the, uh, the memorial. And in the year 2038, they're going to dig it up. And they're going to show the people what they buried back so many years ago. Now that's so it, interesting. It is a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a big thing. And and of course the Martians did not land there, but the fact that the 
that little town decided to um, embrace that idea and say, well, all right, we, we were just, it was a dart throw and they picked us. And to be able to capitalize on that, I think is, is like a, a wink and a nod and a good sense of humor that, that they did that. And it gave us a place to go to, to say this was the named place. It was actually just a name on a map as part of the, the radio play. But, um, but interesting that it didn't turn out to be Newark and yet the Martians were moving between Grover's Mill and Newark and New York City in the play itself. Right, now Grover's Mill, if you looked you know, westbound on, on, at a Grover's Mill, just about maybe six miles is the campus of Princeton University. It's right there. Right. So if you happen to go to Princeton, you know, just to visit or whatever, you only turn your car around and just hop over the highway and there's Grover's Mill and you could see everything. But, you know, there's, you would think, well, this only happened in the United States. That's all they, you know, that, that's where all the happening was. And that's where the people got excited. Uh-uh-uh. Because it caught the attention of no other than Adolf Hitler. <laughs> he found out about this. And wow. Hitler made a speech on November 8th, 1938, in Munich. And he, was, he said... The effect of this broadcast on the American public is evidence of the corrupt condition and decadent state of affairs and democracy. Hmm. Well, Adolf has spoken. <laughs> so obviously he, uh, he didn't care for it. <laughs> and I love the tie-in in a movie that was called The Night That Panicked America. It's about this broadcast and the effect that it had. And they're just as important, the, the orchestration of it. Orson Welles, uh, unarguably a young genius who went on to become an older genius, known for many, many things, a, a creative genius for sure. And when you look at, at the labored effort on the part of perhaps a couple of dozen people to pull this off, there, it's amazing to me that they did it in such a way as to attract international attention on the basis of what was clearly said to be, and there's a question at the end of this for you, Carl. It was said, this is a dramatization and a different, I think at least- uh, Of H.G. Wells' story. Story right, in right. three, you know, it was almost like uh, they tried to squeeze another one in station break because the, at the CBS studios, the switchboard was just blowing up. And they tried their best to indicate this is a, a dramatic presentation. It's a fictional account. But if you weren't listening from beginning to end, you caught it. Let's say you tuned in five minutes into this. What would you be thinking? And what would be the safety valve? What would be the fallback for people, Carl, who were actually living in New York City? Because embedded in the broadcast, and I think over the objections of Mr. Wells, Orson Wells, it seems that he wanted it a certain way, but he was under tremendous pressure at the last minute to not provide real name places, hotels and whatnot in New York. So it seems, Carl, that if people were sharp, if they were listening to it, New Yorkers, people living in and around the city, they might realize, wait a minute, there's no such places that, and they would be tipped off to the fact that this was in fact a dramatization and not a news report. Well, exactly, because... 
uh, he wanted to use the name Hotel Bilt Biltmore, which is a real hotel. And they said, you can't do that. You can't use the real name of, of the place in New York City. So he changed it to the Hotel Park Plaza. It sounded good. And people believe if you were a New Yorker, you could say, hey, that's a new hotel. I never heard of it. But I guess, you know, a New Yorker has so many hotels, so many restaurants, whatever. I don't think they keep advised of everything that goes up there all the time. So they fool them, too. Hmm. And you got to remember about this, this broadcast is that um, once you start the snowball rolling downhill, all right, it's hard to keep it from from continuing. If you get a, a neighbor that knocks on your door and says, the Martians are right next to the Pulaski Skyway and they're heading towards Newark, the person's not going to run to their radio and turn it on to, to listen to what's going on. He's listening to his neighbor. And so that's what happens is that one tells the other, the phone calls are made saying, get ready to get out of your house because the Martians have landed. So from a little handful of people or these people listening to this broadcast, it expands to people who never heard it. They just reacted to it. And we have that in today's society, too. How many times they react to, uh, well, now we have the Internet. Internet comes out with some really crazy stories. And how many people believe it? They never check it. They just believe it. And uh, so it goes to show you, we do it today. They did it back then in 1938. So nothing surprises me about that. Even though we have so many channels, so many ways of communicating now, just look at social media alone, the implications are just immense worldwide. Back in 1938, there was really an extended reach, though I understand, Carl, that it has been debated. I'm going to provide some examples in a moment before we go to break of the different reports, including one not too far away from Seattle. So all the way across the country, people were making connections. Oh, my God, we're all going to die. It's the end of the world. With all of that, I can understand how people in positions of authority, particularly the Defense Department, federal government, would say, this really is a, a life lesson for us. And they probably said this in retrospect, you know, when it was going on, God only knows what they were doing or saying. But afterward, they look at this and there was a reaction. There were legal inquiries and Orson Welles faced a bit of trouble himself. Ultimately, he just went on to a glorious career. But many people thought this is too dangerous to treat in this manner because of mass hysteria. What if some what if there were a Martian invasion or an invasion from Germany? There were the winds of war were blowing in October of 1938. And so how do you get control of these sources of information which are relied upon by the American public, even the world at large, how do you do all that and still have freedom of the press, freedom to broadcast while not wanting to have a like experience in the future, especially with World War II threatening from Europe? Well, that's true. I mean, the thing is, how do you stop it? You can't stop it. Because I don't know if you saw the uh, the story today. They said that Jerry Lee Lewis was dead. The only problem is Jerry Lee Lewis isn't dead. They had people starting up memorials, uh, stations were putting together all kinds of stories about his life. 
And the person who got mostly amused by it was Jerry Lee Lewis, who said, I'm not dead. But here we had all we had all this going on where people don't check anything. They heard a story and they're running with it. And now 1938, you know, what's the difference? And they had some big boogeyman back then, you know, uh, Germany and Japan and, you know, horrible things were going on. So why not believe it when you heard any kind of a story? There were bad things going on. We heard it and we know terrible things are happening. So when we hear a little bit more terrible things happening towards us, we're going we're gonna to snap at it. We're going we're gonna to bite on that bait. We still do. In the movie, and I don't know about the accuracy of the statistic, but they said there were approximately 6 million people tuning in, listening. And they were saying it could have been uh, a million people who were reacting to the broadcast because they didn't hear it from the actual beginning where they said this is a dramatization of H.G. Wells' book. Right. It's just a reaction. And speaking of reactions, let me read these. Carl, this is worth reflecting on. Let's look at the reach here. In Providence, Rhode Island, quote, weeping and hysterical women, unquote, swamped the Providence Journal with calls asking for more details of the quote unquote massacre. In Pittsburgh, Associated Press reported, a man returned home in the middle of the broadcast and found his wife with a bottle of poison in her hand saying, and I quote, I'd rather die this way than like that, unquote. In San Francisco, Police fielded hundreds of calls from frightened listeners, including one man who wanted to volunteer to help fight the Martian invaders. And in Concrete, Washington, I've been saving this one for last. In Concrete, Washington, phone lines and electricity suffered a short circuit at the Superior Portland Cement Company substation. Entirely unrelated to the broadcast, I might add. Bone lines, electricity suffered a short circuit. Residents of concrete were unable to call their neighbors, family, or friends to calm their fears. Reporters who heard of the coincidental blackout sent the story over the newswire, and concrete Washington suddenly was known worldwide. <laughs> well, here's something I could add to that. Within three weeks of the broadcast, at least 12,500 articles are written about the broadcast. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of writing. And within three weeks. And this is what people had available. You went to your newspaper. You know, you didn't turn on Walter Cronkite. Not yet. Not for years. There are people gathered around their radio. That's an old scene. That's something from like Saturday night. Uh, Saturday Evening Post or something like that, you know, it, people gathered around the radio because it became this source, this font of entertainment in the days before television and gathered there. I'm thinking, Carl, that men, women, children were reinforcing each other's terror as this broadcast unfolded if they didn't pay attention to the disclaimers. So now entire families are wondering, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. We're going to be crushed by these electronic monsters, these giant robots, these things with their death ray, with the heat rays, 
and the black smoke, it was all so beautifully portrayed by Orson Welles and his troupe, so as to give people this sense of what I think you filmmakers would call verisimilitude. It seemed all too real. That's right. And uh, I, I know that in this, it, what I heard was in the broadcast and also in the movie was that the, um, uh, they didn't want Orson Welles to have the president's voice, to say that the president is now on the line and he's saying that we have to watch out for these uh, Martians, whatever. And so uh, in the uh, story, there was a secretary of the interior. And so they had people there who would do voiceovers. And so the one guy prior to the broadcast, and he said to Orson Welles, what does the secretary of interior sound like? <laughs> he said, he sounds like FDR. <laughs> <laughs> that night anyway. <laughs> So I guess, you know, the guy got up to the microphone and say, we have a terrible situation here with the Martians you know, so, you know, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so people, people probably never heard he was secretary of the interior. All they know is that FDR is talking about the Martians. Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Let's go ahead and take a break. Our one and only break of the hour. We're talking with Carl Petrie about the night that panicked America. October 30, 1938, Halloween Eve, and the Martians showed up at everyone's doorstep, or at least we were afraid as a nation that they might be prepared to do so with death and destruction in their wake. This is Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes. We'll be back with more of the story. Glad to have you with us as we get ready to trick or treat. This is AM 1150. We'll be right back. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Carl Petrie for a review of the classic War of the Worlds radio broadcast from October 30, 1938, with Orson Welles and the place in New Jersey where the fictional craft supposedly landed. On Saturday, Leslie Rule sets a spooky pre-Halloween tone with stories from her latest book, 
Haunted in America. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Wondering what's on next on Alternative Talk 1150? Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our special guest this hour, mm. Carl Petrie. Uh, Carl, if um, if people want to connect with you about either your mediumship or or film work or anything that uh, they might want to do, is what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I guess uh, uh, they could contact me through email. Okay. And uh, you know, it's, I'll give it out as Petri K S at aol.com. And they, they could and contact Petri me. Petri is P E T R Y. King and Sam. <laughs> All right. Carl, I made joking reference because uh, we knew it was your birthday today. We wanted to honor you in some small way. And I made joking reference to Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. The inclusion of music there with the producer, John Houseman. Remember him, John Houseman from Paper Chase and who did those ads so many years ago for Smith Barney? There he um, he worked with closely with Orson Welles as collaborators. It seemed that they wanted to lengthen the suspense as excruciatingly as possible in interrupting the music. This was supposed to be a musical program, including some dance music. And then they had the news bulletins, and they came in, and there were interruptions, and there were uh, moments of silence as you waited to find out what happened there, what was the next bulletin. And yet they mixed the music in so that they were attempting at the same time to entertain and to quell fears in this fictional world created by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in order to keep people hanging on the edges of their seats, terrified of what was unfolding supposedly. Well, you're talking about John Hausman. John Hausman uh, teamed up with Orson Welles as uh, soon as Orson Welles graduated from the Art Institute in Chicago. Uh, Orson Welles was born in Wisconsin and he went on to school in Chicago. And when he left school, he found this John Hausman, who was actually born in Romania in 1902. Mm. And they got together and they started to uh, produce Broadway plays, you know, plays, then it went on to Broadway. And it was so successful that they decided to uh, put their work on the air. And that's how the Mercury Theater on the air happened. The actual acting um, troupe that they had was the Mercury Theater. And that's who was on Broadway, like in New York. And then when they went on to the radio, it was the Mercury Theater on the air. So that's that's the tie-in between Hausman and uh, Orson Welles. And Orson Welles was a genius. And he teamed up with the right guy, John Houseman. Uh, their um, uh, productions on Broadway were all successful. They were people loved them because of these little tricks that they would pull, like they did on the air, by interrupting radio and uh, music and interrupting it with news. Uh, that was all done never before by by uh, Orson Welles. Now, after this was over, of course, he got a huge tongue lashing saying what a terrible thing he did and he sat there apologetic to the whole thing yeah apologize to it, but you realize now you're an icon he was now known as the greatest trickster in the world 
He was a wonderful storyteller and the greatest trickster. So the, all the doors flung open for him. Now everybody wanted Orson Welles because he was the one that scared America in 1938. <laughs> so now you understand. <laughs> when you listen to the last part of the broadcast, there is a kind of eloquent, but at the same time primitive travelogue about this man, a Mr. Pearson there who was seeking the uh, venues of destruction. He was making his way, venturing outside. And he starts to talk about it in terms that indicated to me anyway, as I listened to the broadcast again, just this morning, it seemed like he was talking about in retrospect, this is what he discovered. This is who he met along the way. Some character who thought that he could take over the world now that this catastrophe happened, he was trying to exploit it. And he did it with a narrative that I would think should have told people you're talking about something fictional because just you know less than an hour ago they broke into this musical program and we're telling people this is what's happening we have the news we're in contact with the uh, astronomer at Princeton etc cetera, etc cetera. we're getting reports from as far away as uh, San Diego all of this going on and yet people thought, wow, this is live radio. We're hearing this. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? It's almost like the context was lost. And that's, I think, one of the symptoms of mass hysteria, that you would lose track of what you're actually listening to. Oh, yeah. And uh, the people really reacted violently to this thing. For example, uh, maybe some of your listeners remember a uh, celebrity of uh, television and radio celebrity, Jack Parr. Uh, Jack Parr did the, um, the Tonight Show years ago. And at the time, in 1938, he had a, a radio show on WGAR. It was uh, a radio show that uh, was going on at the same time as Orson Welles' show. And what happened is that the people, and, oh, that was in Cleveland, by the way, not in New York. And uh, he started getting calls from listeners saying to Jack Parr, what is all the information that you have, or why don't you report what's happening with the Martians landing in New Jersey? And he's, he, they said, the world is coming to an end. Why don't you talk about it? He said, the Martians did not land in New Jersey. He said, that's all, that's all false. The reaction from his listeners were that Jack Parr was a terrible person because he's shielding the truth from the American people. So they really had it in for Jack Parr. So it goes to show you how the mentality of people are, you know, about was something terrible. They think something terrible is happening. They're out for blood. This is it. Well, and, you know, once again, I'm thinking to myself, conspiracy theories. So if he's got people who are saying, you know, you're not responding to something that's real and he's saying, no, 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 it's not real. Once more, you have a division between what's real and what isn't real and what is a what is a conspiracy and what is just something imaginary. And as you know, in this year, it's like, wow, it just it just happens over and over and over again. Well, people want to believe what they want to believe. And uh, unfortunately, so many people look at the dark side as being the truth. And that's why you have conspiracy theories about uh, the, the John F. Kennedy assassination. They refuse to believe that one person killed him. 
Now, whether he did or not, I don't know. But we're not talking about a small percentage. We're talking about yes. you know, 60% of the American public believes yes. there was a conspiracy behind that. Yes. As I said, I don't know if that's true or not, but you see how they go to the negative. It's yeah. they go to the negative portion of things. And we see that today on most um, anything that's a bit controversial. They always lean towards it's a cover up. The, the, the country's doing this. They're trying to shield it from the people. Right. And we live through that every single day, just like they did in 1938. Like they did in 1938. That was the parallel I was drawing as I was watching the movie and listening to the broadcast. And, and I was thinking, you know, things just haven't changed all that much. And, and even if you heard the disclaimer in the beginning, you know, that this is a, a, a a fictional account based on H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds. Even if you heard that, once you're into it for 10 or 20 or 30 minutes, you, you can like give over your imagination at that point and, and really start to believe that it's true. Like maybe, maybe it is more than just a play. Maybe, maybe it's actually really happening. I think people who have have heard it was a play could have gotten so mentally involved in it that they forget that part they set it aside and and just got scared it was a good halloween scare that's true and uh you know even as a filmmaker uh i made films whatever like documentaries uh one documentary was about the uh, uh supposed u.s u.s UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And you would think little me making this movie wouldn't have much of an impact, but it did. A lot of people saw it and they were really taken by it. And it, it was all true according to what I could find. But they took my, my film and they expanded it. They started telling me things that were in my film that were never there. They started quoting from my film that Quotes that weren't in the film. They were talking about it. So I know that a broadcast, they could hear something on a broadcast and then embellish it yes. to where it's yeah. all different you know, sizes. It just made a huge difference. So, yeah, I, I believe that happened to me. And that's why we have the phrase fact checking or fact checkers in the vernacular these days. And it's been true for many years. I'll bet you they didn't use that term in 1938, listening no. to the radio. Today, no, you've no. got to be your own fact checker because of what you're allowing or refusing to allow into your awareness. Well, a lot has to do, too, is it's radio. But when you have someone with a very great voice, like Orson Welles had a very serious type of voice. And when he spoke to you, you would believe it. Yes. Where if you had somebody with a squeaky voice, the Martians yeah. have landed, you know, they're not going right. to believe them. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Mickey Mouse voice. <laughs> yeah. You would never believe it. But he had a great voice that he used not only in the 38 broadcasts, but when he started making films, you know, when you heard Orson Welles speak, it was like a voice from God. You would believe it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think uh, who that would be now, like James Earl Jones or something. That's the great yes. example. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and you know, speaking of that, he this if the 
Mercury Theater was a weekly broadcast and Orson Welles was weekly on the air, it's it kind of uh, the question could be asked as to why people didn't recognize his voice in the play and, and know that it was not, you know, a professor from the outside or a general or something like that because well, his I, voice I, was recognizable. Oh, sure. But I discovered that his uh, Mercury Theater on the Air was a good show, but it wasn't that popular because it went up against, you know, Edgar Bergen, uh, you know, who was, you yeah. know, king at the time. So yeah. people wanted to yeah. hear Edgar Bergen. People who want to listen to radio of a ventriloquist, I won't understand that. <laughs> you know, what are they going to say? Boy, that guy is good. It's a radio. How do you know? But well, it was <laughs> it was just doing all those voices, I guess, Carl. <laughs> I know. But it goes to show you that, you know, uh, they were listening to the other station and then they turned into Dorson Wells because of the musical interlude. That's like people now. If they're watching a program and a commercial comes on, yep. they hit another station because they yep. don't want to watch it. Yep. So we do that today with television. They yeah, did it do. back then with radio. Hmm. Interesting. There are human themes involved here. And one of them is our willingness to surrender our rational sense, whether it be well or poorly developed when we are confronted with something that overwhelms our senses. In this movie to which Suzanne and I refer, The Night That Panicked America, it was a made-for-TV movie. I think you can still get it. I, I noticed there were copies available on eBay, for example, if you're interested. But in the movie, without giving too much away, by the way, it wasn't actually The Martian's Landing, so that's a spoiler alert, uh, spoiler alert right there. Sorry. I should have asked people to leave the room so that they wouldn't figure this out, right? But uh, the, uh, there was a farmer with a water tower and some of the townsfolk, uh, maybe fellow farmers, went over to, to face the invaders. That was their call to duty to save America and the world. And they wound up putting bullet holes and destroying this water tower belonging to a neighboring farmer. This is all happening in this little patch of New Jersey. And I thought as I was watching it the other night, Carl, in preparation for our interview today, I thought, is that so very different from a centuries-old novel by Miguel de Cervantes called Don Quixote, in which our starry-eyed dreamer hero, Don Quixote, winds up confronting a windmill, and he's tilting his lance at a windmill, seeing this as a threat of some kind of... Um, dragon of sorts that had yeah. to be slain. Yeah. It was a monster yeah. in his failure to appreciate reality. And I thought, there you have it right there. People get an idea in their heads and, uh, oh, come on, you can't. Oh, my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, forgive me because it sounds like satire and it is not. Suzanne, you see the news alert there. There actually is a news alert, Carl. Get a load of this. You want to read it? No. Uh, we have this, and uh, thank you, Benny, for yep. passing this along. Talk about up-to-the-minute news. Oh, my goodness. News alert, and this is no joke. Jerry Lee Lewis just passed away of natural causes, and I believe he was 87. Yep. Right. So now the obituaries are for real. <laughs> wow. Right. This is this flow of information wow. there, but uh, to get weird. back to our narrative, I mean, we're, we uh, regret his passing, of course, one of the legends of rock music, rockabilly 
from back in the 50s, especially Jerry Lee Lewis has passed. When people have these notions in their head that become accepted as reality, you know, it kind of reminds me of the exaggerated threats in people's imaginations, even today, even in the political arena, people seemingly, some people at some point in their life, under whatever circumstances, seem all too willing to accept unreality as reality, and then even worse, they act on it. They act on their misperceptions. That's yes. very dangerous, obviously. You know, and I see that all the time. These people get this crazy information. They never check if it's true or not. And then they run with it. And then I, I, I see them and they tell me about the obvious. And they said, when you see a plane flying overhead and you see that, you know, a jet, and you see like the, like, it looks like smoke behind it. I says, that's only vapor going through the engine and it, it turns into, uh, uh, it like burns it up and it makes like a cloud behind them. And they told me, Carl, you're naive. I said, well, what do you think it is? And they said that they are pouring chemicals on the people. That's a chem trail. That's chemical trails that they're throwing chemicals on the people. And it's and I and I hear this and I look, I says, and you believe that? And they do. They thought I was naive. Oh, by the way, when we started this broadcast, Jerry Lee Lewis was alive. I know. That is <laughs> just so weird. I know, because uh, you know, I read that this morning, and then Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, was staring into the camera. He says, I'm still alive. You know, the the what people would do to make me look bad. <laughs> they'll even die on you carl couldn't he wait a day he says no this is my opportunity to make carl look like a schmuck. <laughs> and we will not tolerate carl petri being made to look like a schmuck by these martians or jerry lee lewis or anybody else whatever oh, it's like jerry what are you doing to me <laughs> I, I think about these stories. There, there's a parable in there. There, there well, really is. When you think about it in terms of a, a living allegory right. of how people get the wrong idea and act accordingly, very dangerous stuff. There, there was something that I learned uh, decades and decades ago, and I, I want to say I learned it in college somewhere. You can have a, a picture that has so many pixels in it, say a thousand, and you can have, you know, 10 or 20 missing and people don't see it. They actually fill in what is missing from right. what it is that they're looking at. So it's, it's easy to, to fill in, you know, with, with what isn't there. And, and I, that, that's always been kind of a curiosity to me. If you, if there is a flaw somewhere in a painting or a flaw in a photo, people won't necessarily see it. They will see what they want to see. They'll see the picture in its entirety and won't think a thing of it. People don't look for those little details about what's missing. Well, that's true. I mean, if you ever saw the film Earth versus the Flying Saucers, if you ever saw that film, uh, it takes place at a air, at a air base, and the Martians land there. Okay, now if you watch the movie, uh, 
they show these people at this, this Air Force base, and they're running up the stairs. And what you see are a tremendous amount of water pipes, huge, big water pipes. And there's pumps and there's big water, you know, like, I, and I can't emphasize that enough, how many pipes there were. And what you don't know is that when they were filming this movie, the only place they could find to shoot these scenes was the water company. Mm, so okay. they went there and nobody ever thought or ever gave it much thought is why are there so many water pump, uh, water pumps and pipes at an Air Force base? But see, because they were so interested in the story, they bypassed yes. everything else. Yes. Yeah. And right. I'll tell you, honestly, I missed it too. I never thought of it. And what's really funny about it is when they were making the sound effects, there was a water pump in there that had a bad burring in it. So it made like this whirling sound. Yeah. And so when they were coming up with the sound effects for the flying saucer, they recorded the the bad burring. And that was the sound of the uh, of the flying saucers landing uh, at the Air Force Base. Huh. <laughs> and in the last couple of minutes we have here, Carl. So when it came time for Orson Welles's broadcast, what did they use to simulate a Martian craft landing? Uh, I believe some of it was uh, they went to a toilet and they put <laughs> uh, a roll of paper and they started, you know, like using it at like a trumpet, you know, to to make sounds like a whirling, whooshing sound coming from a toilet. And they had a stagehand with a pickle jar. And it had a, uh, a sufficiently metallic sound if you held it in the toilet bowl and ran a wire and put a microphone there and you slowly turned the lid of the pickle jar. It sounded like the opening of some craft, which people in their fear-driven imaginations took to be the Martians landing. Exactly. You know, in motion pictures today, we, you, they're called Foley artists. And they're the ones that make the sounds that you see in the movies and you never think anything about it because sometimes they're walking uh, on a wooden stage that looks like a desert. And if they really use the sound, you would hear them walking on wood and you say, why are they walking on wood? They're in a desert. So they take away that audio track and they make sounds like a whooshing sound, like you're walking on sand. So we use Foley artists today. Orson Welles had really some great people doing great audio work on that 1938 broadcast, which made it so believable. And people did believe it by the thousands. And uh, the rest is history. Thank yes. you, Carl Petri. We wish you and lovely Sue a happy Halloween. Hope you have a good time. And we look forward to your next visit. God only knows what we'll be talking about, but we'll be talking about it with you. And that's what counts. Thanks, Carl. And thank you. Love the show. Love being on it. All we'll right. be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>